Good morning, church. So very good to see you this morning. As always, I cannot begin without telling you I love you, and I am incredibly thankful to be part of such a wonderful church family. I, I also love my wife, and just so you know, if I tell a story about my wife or my kids, I always ask their permission before I tell that story, so you should know that before I tell this story. So my wife has had, over the last couple of years, has had some uh, struggles with uh, sleepwalking, and you know, that can be funny, but it can also be kind of dangerous, and, and so one, one morning she was sleepwalking, I was sitting at the, the kitchen table doing some work early in the morning, and she wandered into the kitchen. Now, Holly is not really the kind of person that likes to chat early in the morning, so I, I usually wait for her to greet me before I greet her anyway, but I could tell this morning she not only wasn't in the mood to talk, I couldn't tell whether or not she was even had her eyes open fully, and she just kind of wandered in, kind of zombie-like, and I just kind of watched her for a moment, and, and then she got closer and closer to the wall. Now, I, I kind of had a dilemma, because on the one hand, I had always heard, don't wake a sleepwalking person. I'd always heard that, but I'd also heard, you know, don't let your wife run into a wall. That, that's also <laughs> probably good. So I didn't know which of those two I should follow. And she kept getting closer and closer to the wall. And I knew she's going to run into it. She's run into things before when she's sleepwalking. And so very gently and quietly, I said, honey, and that was not something she appreciated in the moment. She got you know pretty upset because she was startled awake, but she didn't run into a wall, at least not that day, okay? So I, I tell you that because I think that a lot of us are sleepwalking, spiritually speaking. We're sleepwalking through life. We're going through the motions. We're up, we're active, we're walking around, we're doing things, but we're unaware of what we're doing, where we're headed, and the consequences of the direction in which we're headed. So I want to begin today by asking, am I sleepwalking through life? I want you to reflect on your own life. After all, our theme this year is reflect and renew. And so I want us to reflect on this question, am I sleepwalking through life? Is it possible that I'm just going through the motions and kind of zombie-like, just kind of wandering through life, doing things, active, upright, but really unaware of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and the consequences of continuing on this path? Is it possible that you are headed to a wall and you don't even know it? And if that's possible, that you're sleepwalking through life, if so, what would it take for God to wake me up? What would it take for God to wake you up? To say, hey, stop, wake up, you're going to run into a wall. I, I love you and I don't want you to hurt yourself. Those that are sleepwalking don't know they're sleepwalking. And so it's really easy for us to think to ourselves, well, I'm not sleepwalking, I'm wide awake, I'm, I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm headed, but do you really? Because if you were asleep, that's probably what you would be telling yourself. I'm wide awake. And throughout history, God's people have been asleep, sleepwalking through life, and God has had to 
wake them up and say, wake up, people. Realize what you're doing and where you're headed and, and the consequences of living your life this way. And God would send prophets to his people to give them a wake-up call, to say, realize and recognize and open your eyes to what you are doing and the consequences if you don't stop. If you don't stop headed in this direction, there will be serious consequences for you and for others. So just stop for a moment this morning and ask yourself, is it possible that you are sleepwalking through life? You're just doing the things that you've always done, living the way you've always lived, going through the motions, not really stopping to examine these things to say, wait a second, is this right? I know I've always done this, and I know my parents always did this, and I know that other people around me are doing these things, but is this really what I ought to be doing? Is this really how I ought to be living? And is it possible that even right now at this moment, God is saying, wake up, wake up, stop heading in this direction. Realize what you're doing. Open your eyes to what you are doing. Because this has happened throughout history. God has sent prophets to his people to give them a wake-up call. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the minor prophets, not minor because they're unimportant, minor because they're shorter books, and look at some of these short minor prophet books of the Old Testament and listen as God gives a wake-up call to his people and then ask ourselves, is it possible? that I need a similar wake-up call? Is it possible that I'm wandering, sleepwalking through life? And is God trying to get my attention? So we're gonna begin this morning by talking about the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Now Hosea had an interesting marriage. I'm gonna to try to navigate this story as delicately as possible, but Hosea had an interesting marriage to a woman named Gomer. You may be familiar with this part of the story. It's the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. Hosea and Gomer had a, a horrible marriage. In fact, it began this way. When God told Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman, go marry an unfaithful woman, go marry a woman who will sell her love to other people. And so Hosea knew going into it that this is the way his marriage was going to go. He knew that Gomer was going to be unfaithful to him. So he goes and he marries a woman who he knows is going to be promiscuous. He knows is going to sell her love to other people. And he marries her anyway because that's what God told him to do. So he goes and marries this woman and they have their first child. At least this one is Hosea's child. And they named the first child, Hosea names the first child Jezreel. Jezreel because Jezreel was the name of a place where a horrible massacre had happened. That's the kind of name you want, right? And then Gomer has a second child, a daughter, and Hosea names this child No Mercy, or maybe even Not Loved. That's an even worse name, isn't it? And then a third child comes along, a son, and Hosea names this child, not my people, not my children. That might be the worst name of them all. 
And Gomer continues to be the promiscuous, unfaithful wife that God told Hosea that she was going to be. And eventually, somehow, probably because Hosea cut her off and drove her away because of her unfaithfulness, she's gone. And she becomes enslaved and she becomes indebted to the people to whom she sold her love. Why? Why did God expect Hosea to go through something so horrible? Why did God command Hosea to marry a woman like this and to go through all of these things? Why? Because it was a wake-up call for Israel. To say, Israel, don't you realize this is what you're doing to God? This is how God feels about your unfaithfulness. This is how you're treating God. You are treating God the same way that Gomer is treating Hosea. You are unfaithful to him, and because of your unfaithfulness, he is going to cut you off and drive you away, and you will be indebted and enslaved to the people to whom you've sold your love because you haven't been faithful to the one you were in covenant relationship with. So let's talk about that. How was Israel unfaithful to their God, Yahweh? Why were they unfaithful to Yahweh? In fact, it might surprise you that they kept worshiping Yahweh. They kept worshiping the one true God. They kept praying to the one true God. They kept offering sacrifices to the one true God. They just added some other worship to it. And part of that worship was religious They they offered sacrifices to, they paid homage to, they prayed to Baal, the Canaanite god of rain and thunder. They, They lived in an agricultural world and they needed rain and they needed crops. And the Canaanites said, well, pray to Baal and give homage to Baal, and and then you'll have rain and crops. And when you get rain and crops, say thanks to Baal because Baal's the one who gave you these things. And they did. And they did. They sold their love to Baal. They tried to continue worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, but they also worshiped and prayed to Baal. And part of their unfaithfulness wasn't just religious, it was political. And this might surprise you, but part of their unfaithfulness was political because they made alliances, or at least they tried to make alliances with empires like Egypt or like Assyria because they thought we... We need their protection. We need somebody strong and mighty. We need a nation, an empire with a strong military to protect us. And so they paid tribute to these other nations, these other kingdoms like Assyria, hoping that if they paid tribute, then these kingdoms and empires would protect them and watch over them and give them peace. And those tributes that they tried to offer were like sacrifices. And God saw it as adultery. God saw it as unfaithfulness because they were supposed to be trusting in Yahweh to protect them and to watch over them. So here's what I want us to realize as we go through this lesson is this. Idolatry is not limited to putting something above God. Too often that's how we define idolatry, isn't it? If you ask somebody, what's idolatry? 
What does it mean to worship a false god? What does it mean to have an idol? Then somebody might say, well, it means putting something above God. Nonsense. You don't have to put a false god above God to be an idol. All you have to do is have a false god in addition to God. See, God isn't interested in just being Israel's favorite god. He's interested in being their only God. He doesn't just want to be their favorite God. He wants to be their only God. Hosea doesn't want to be Gomer's favorite lover. He wants to be her only lover. Because that's what it is to be in covenant with someone, to be married to someone, to say, I belong exclusively to you and you belong exclusively to me. You're my only one. Not just you're my favorite one. So if we continue to define idolatry as simply putting something above God or replacing God with something else, then we'll continue to let ourselves off the hook and think, well, then I'm not guilty of idolatry because God is still my favorite. God is still number one. God is still tops in my book. Well, that wasn't God's problem with Israel. It wasn't, hey, you're putting Baal above me or you're putting Assyria above me. It's that you are trying to be someone who worships both and trusts in both and prays to both and has an alliance with both and you can't have it both ways. You have to choose. It's either me or them, but you cannot have multiple gods. You cannot have multiple allegiances. Even if Yahweh is the top God, the chief God in your pantheon of gods, you're still guilty of adultery if you are praying to and worshiping and trusting in other gods in addition to Yahweh. We call this syncretism. And that's what we see going on in Israel is that they were trying to combine worship of Yahweh with the worship of and trust in other gods and other powers and other authorities. So we have to stop even before we get into the text and say, am I guilty of that? Oh, I I, I have no doubt that we all would say, God is number one to me. Yeah, but let me ask you this. Who's number two? And who's number three and who's number four and who's number five? Or should I say what is number two or three or four or five? And are those things that are two and three and four and five, are those becoming things that you also worship? Things that you also devote yourself to similar to the way you devote yourself to Yahweh. So if you have your Bible, look at Hosea chapter 8. Hosea chapter 8. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation in this portion because it's easy to understand. Here's what Hosea 8 says. Sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord, for they have broken my covenant, says the Lord, and revolted against my law. Now Israel pleads with me, help us, for you are our God. But it's too late The people of Israel have rejected what is good and now their enemies will chase after them. Do you see? It's syncretism. It's that they were trying to have it both ways. We we haven't turned our back on you, Yahweh. 
We haven't turned your, our back on you, Lord. We, we still love you. You're our God. Deliver us. Help us. Save us. And God says, it's too late. It's too late. You made other gods. You made alliances with other powers. You trusted in politics. You trusted in militaries. You trusted in might. You trusted in the world. Let them save you. In fact, not only will they not save you, they're going to be the ones that pursue you and destroy you. It's too late. It's too late. You're saying now, now all of a sudden, God, God, we need your help. Aren't we the same way sometimes? We put our trust in and give our devotion to and our allegiance to all of these other things. And then when we're in trouble, when the chips are down, then all of a sudden we say, no, no, you're our God. We need your help. And God says to his people, it's too late. It's too late. You've trusted in all of these other things. Let those other things save you. Verse 4, the people have appointed kings without my consent and princes without my approval. By making idols for themselves from silver and gold, they have brought about their own destruction. You know where idols exist before they're made out of silver and gold? In our hearts. In our hearts. We've already given our allegiance and our devotion to this idea or this concept or this thing. And then we make an idol, an image to represent it. Something, something to direct our devotion towards. Something to direct our allegiance to. But we've already begun to worship this thing in our hearts. Verse 5, O Samaria, I reject this calf, this idol that you've made. My fury burns against you. How long will you be incapable of innocence? This calf you worship, O Israel, was crafted by your own hands. It's not God. Therefore, it must be smashed to bits. That's what we should do with idols. Smash them to bits. God says, this calf that you've made, and probably what they had done, historians think probably what they have done, they've built these two golden calves, similar to what they did when they came out of Egypt, and they probably meant them to be something like the throne of God. But they were also tied to Baal worship. And so it's this, again, syncretism. This idea of trying to, well, we're worshiping Yahweh, it's just that this idol of Baal is the throne of Yahweh. We're just trying to have it both ways. And God says, I reject this calf and it must be smashed to bits. Verse 7, they've planted the wind and will harvest the whirlwind. The stalks of grain wither and produce nothing to eat. And even if there is any grain, foreigners will eat it. The people of Israel have been swallowed up. They lie among the nations like an old discarded pot. That's what idols do to us. That's what false gods do to us. They demand our sacrifices and we give everything to them because we think it's going to be worth it and we pour out ourselves to them. But in the end, we're just like an old discarded pot, nothing left. That's what every obsession does to us. It's what every addiction does to us. It drains us of everything that we have. And in the end, we have nothing left. Our false gods demand everything and give us nothing but death. Verse 9, like a wild donkey looking for a mate, 
They've gone up to Assyria. The people of Israel have sold themselves, sold themselves to many lovers. But though they have sold themselves to many allies, I will now gather them together for judgment. Then they will writhe under the burden of the great king. You see, not all of their adultery was religious. It was also political. And the New Testament actually says something similar. In James chapter 4, James says, You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't put your trust in political alliances to make you safe and make you feel good and then also say, yeah, God, but we also trust in you to make us safe and feel good. You got to choose. Which will it be? And they chose that they wanted friendship with Assyria. And Assyria would be the nation that destroyed them and took them into captivity. Verse 11, Israel has built many altars to take away sin, but these very altars became places for sinning. Even though I gave them all my laws, they act as if these, those laws don't apply to them. You see, sleepwalking through life. They thought, we're, we're religious people. We're offering sacrifices to take away our sins. We're offering all of these sacrifices. And God says, no, don't you see? It's actually your sacrifices. That's where you are sinning. Because you're trying to worship more than one God. You're not just worshiping me. You're not just serving me. You're also serving Baal. You're also trying to serve Assyria. You're also unfaithful to me. And so the very acts of worship that you think are taking away your sin are actually compounding and adding to your sin. Verse 13, the people love to offer sacrifices to me, feasting on the meat, but I do not accept their sacrifices. I will hold my people accountable for their sins and I will punish them. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten its maker and built great palaces and Judah has fortified its cities. Therefore, I will send down fire on their cities and will burn up their fortresses. Wake up, people. That's what Hosea is saying, isn't it? Hosea's entire life, his marriage, his ministry, his words, they all were a message to Israel. Wake up. Wake up. You can't have it both ways. You can't have Yahweh as your God and have any other gods before him. And by the way, before him doesn't mean ahead of him. It means in his face, in his presence. You cannot have any other gods and have Yahweh. You must choose. So before we go any further, let's just kind of make some personal application. At what point... At what point is something becoming a God that you are worshiping alongside Yahweh? Now, I'm going to make some suggestions here in a second, but let me encourage you to do the work of of sitting and meditating on this this week. Ask yourself, at what point, at what point am I in danger? Maybe, Maybe it's not a line. I don't like to draw lines in the sand and say, well, okay, this is the line. You can get as close to that line as you want as long as you don't step over it. That ought not to be what we do. We ought to say, where's where's the line so that I can get as far away from it as possible? I don't want to have any other gods. I don't want any of my other loves 
any of my other devotions to even be in the same category as my love for God. So at what point am I encroaching upon that line where my other loves are becoming worship? Where these other things in my life are becoming false gods? Let me suggest four things. Number one, when you view it as an essential source of peace and strength, when you say, I cannot be strong and I cannot have peace without this, If I don't have this, if I don't have this, whatever this is, it could be a nation, it could be a political alliance, it could be a person, it could be a thing. If I don't have this, then I'm weak. If I don't have this, I'm nothing. If I don't have this, then I'm I'm dead. I have to have this. This is an essential source of strength and peace. When you begin to say, I can't live without this, be careful, Red flag, danger, danger. What are we saying? Are we saying we have to have something in addition to God? Be careful. Be careful there. Number two, when you make sacrifices to it, all of our false gods, all of our idols demand sacrifices, don't they? And when we truly worship something, we gladly offer up some of the most valuable things that we have as sacrifices to our false gods. We offer up our family. We offer up our finances. We offer up our treasure. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Stop and ask yourself, to what am I offering sacrifices? Where is the majority of my time and my energy and my money and my family life going? Am I offering my family as a sacrifice on the altar of career? Am I offering my family as a sacrifice on the altar of keeping up with the Joneses? No offense to the Joneses. What are you sacrificing to? Because there's a good chance that that to which you sacrifice is one of your gods. Number three, be careful here. Number three, when it receives your gratitude and praise. I think think there's a difference between being grateful for something and being grateful to something. But there's something inside of us that when we really love something, some object, some inanimate object, or some idea, some abstract idea, or some institution, we love to anthropomorphize it, don't we? To ascribe to it attributes of being human. We, we love to give it like feminine pronouns and call it her, her. We talk about her. And we sing songs not just about her, but we sing songs to her. Be careful here. Be careful here. This is the exact same impulse from which comes all idolatry. This impulse that says, I love this institution so much. I love this thing so much. I love this place so much that it's not just a thing, it's a her. And I want to sing to her. And I want an image to represent her. And I want to express my devotion to her. And I want to express my gratitude to her. Be careful here. Because we do this sort of thing a lot. 
And this is the impulse of idolatry. Number four, when devotion to it becomes a test of fellowship, when we determine who are our people by whether or not they are also devoted to the same object or the same institution or the same idea. And if you're not devoted to this idea the way I'm devoted to this idea, if you're not devoted to this place like I am or to this ideology like I am, you're not my people. There's a good chance that when you draw lines of who are your people based on what they are devoted to, you found one of your gods. Be very careful here. Stop and ask yourself, do any of these things apply to me? Do any of these things apply to the way I'm living my life? Because maybe, maybe we need a wake-up call as Israel did. But I don't want to end this morning. I know we're about out of time, but I don't want to end this morning on the bad news because all of this has been bad news. But there's good news in Hosea, amen? There's good news in this book. In fact, this good news in Hosea points forward to the good news of Jesus. In your Bible, Hosea chapter 3, Hosea chapter 3, the Lord said to me, to Hosea, go again, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. This whole book is God saying, my people have been unfaithful to me since day one. And they're going to be punished. And they're going to be taken away. And they deserve it. But I love them anyway. And I'm going to bring them back. And Hosea, so that they know it, so that they see it, you go love Gomer again. You go redeem her. You go bring her back so that people see this is the way I love my people. This is the way I'm faithful to them even when they're unfaithful to me. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, verse 5, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Who's David their king? Jesus, the son of David. David, the son of David. Jesus would be their Messiah and he would redeem the people of God. He would love them and bring them home. He would buy them back. He would be their redeemer. And not just their redeemer, but the redeemer of the whole world because all of us have been idolatrous. All of us have worshipped false gods. And God says, I love you all. I love you all. I love Israel. I love the Jew. But I also love the Gentile. I love all of you. And David, the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus, would come to bring us home. And it's going to be his faithfulness, his love that's going to win us back. You want to smash your idols to pieces? And I hope you do. Then look to the goodness of God. Look to the goodness of God. You're not going to smash your idols by your own strength, but by his. But by, by realizing how much he loves you and how faithful he is to you in spite of how unfaithful we've been to him. And his love and his faithfulness will transform us and will teach us to have no 
other gods. He must be your only God, not just your favorite God. He must be your only God, not just your favorite God. Not, not just because God is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. But he's a jealous God because he knows what your false gods will do to you. They will leave you like a discarded pot. They will all disappoint you. They will drain you of everything. They will corrupt you and conform you and leave you dead and dying. But loving him and serving him and worshiping him only will transform you. And he will give you life. But he must be your only God, not just your favorite God. If there's somebody this morning and you're ready to turn your life over to him by being baptized into Christ, by coming home to him, by being restored to him, by recommitting your life to him, you can go and visit with our shepherds in the prayer room after service or come forward now. Let's together we stand and sing this song.